You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I had just submitted it. I hadn't gotten my yes or anything, but I was moving as if I was already, it was a done deal. <laughs> you know, it never occurred to me that they would say no to me, and they didn't. But I just. I, I knew how passionate I was, and I was so committed. I didn't really know the word no. I didn't even conceive of it, and so it was never a limitation for me. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. You're listening to the Producers Perspective Podcast with your host, Tony Award winner, Ken Davenport. Hey, everybody. We're going to get to today's podcast in just a moment. And boy, oh boy, my guest has some fantastic insights on why we need to get more young people to the theater on diversity and also what she feels about audience response on Twitter specifically. So check that out. But first, I want to thank today's sponsor. And by the way, if you are hungry, you are in trouble right now. And also, if you're on a sugar-free diet or trying to get on one, you're in bigger trouble because today's guest is sponsored by that sweet, sweet destination, Magnolia Bakery. You can visit the Magnolia Bakery for freshly baked classic American desserts, including those incredible cupcakes, banana pudding, cakes, cheesecakes, icebox bars, and cookies. Based in New York, but now has locations in Boston, Washington, D.C., L.A., and Chicago, and even overseas. By the way, I talk about the Magnolia Bakery all the time as one of those great stories. I even relate it to Off-Broadway a little bit because I, I used to think that Off-Broadway was like the Magnolia Bakery of the theater world. When Magnolia Bakery was just downtown, it was like hidden, it was this secret spot, and people used to line up around the blocks for it. And they still are now that it's a big, big franchise. Their most popular dessert besides the cupcakes is that banana pudding. They offer a classic flavor as well as more than a dozen specialty flavors on a rotating basis, including chocolate hazelnut, yum, java chip, and salted caramel. So go get a cupcake today. Visit magnoliabakery.com. Follow them at Magnolia Bakery. Some sweet, sweet photos of those sweet, sweet treats. And thank them for supporting this podcast and also just supporting the theater in general. They're great friends there with great desserts. Go get one. And now on with the podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hey, everybody. It's Kent Davenport. Welcome back to the podcast. Very excited to have you here today and also very excited for today's guest who's been very hard to get because she is one of the most in-demand writers today. Super busy. I know that for a fact because I just got off the phone with her agent just a few moments ago inquiring about her availability for a project. And he said, Ken, she's super busy right now. Please welcome to the podcast playwright, book writer, poet, actress, Dominique Mariso. Great, thank you. So Dominique is the author of a whole bunch of plays, three of which are part of a cycle known as the Detroit Project, really what she burst on the scene with. She's had work performed at the Public, Atlantic, Signature, Williamstown, Sundance, the O'Neill Conference, all over the country. She is the book writer of that brand spanking new musical, Ain't Too Proud, the Temptations musical, which just opened to great reviews a few weeks ago and doing very, very good business if you follow those grosses. She's been a producer on a Showtime series, Shameless. She's won a ton of prizes and was named Variety's Women of Impact for 2017-18, and she also was named the MacArthur Foundation Genius just last year. So, Dominique, how did you get started? I read somewhere that you were a poet first. Is that true? That is true. I, I did start off as a poet. I've been a writer since I was a kid. You know, I've, I've written short stories, and I was obsessed with short stories and, like, poems and things like that when I was a kid. But when I was in college, that's when I started to use – I was studying theater, and I started to um, really feel the need to tell my story and to give some voice to myself because I wasn't doing enough work, and we weren't studying work of color in my school. So I felt like I needed to uh, write my own way. And I, I use poetry inspired by Ntozaki Shange for colored girls. You know, I, I use poetry as my entry point into writing plays. How old were you at this point? When I was in college, I was 19, 20 years old. So that's some pretty heavy, heavy duty lifting there to realize that stories about you and your community were not being told and that you were going to be the one to start doing this. Where did you get that kind of courage? You know, I think it's, I, I was an actor. So to me, I'm, and I've always been a very problem solving, like a solution oriented kind of person. So when I look around and I'm an actor and I'm not acting, <laughs> and I came to school to act and to do the kind of work that I, you know, was interested in doing and that wasn't being produced in my school, it was a no brainer to me that, that you, I better, I need to write it. <laughs> you know, I need to, I'm a writer. I want to get on stage and do my own thing. And when I discovered that we had a student run theater that we could submit work to, it was, I was clear like, oh, well then I'm going to do that. I'm going to do my own thing. I don't think I was conscious of filling any larger gap than the gap I was personally feeling. That revelation didn't come to me until after the work was up on its feet. And I saw what it meant to everyone else. And then I said, oh, oh, this is bigger than me. Huh. It's, it's like you were hungry, so you decided to cook yourself a meal instead of waiting for someone else to bring it to you. That's right. That's right. And then you realize, oh, my God, a lot of people are hungry and I can cook. <laughs> you know? well, oh, I better I better make some meals. 
Well, that's yeah. where that's what I wanted to ask is the, oh, I can cook part of it. When did you realize that you actually were good at this? You just st- you started to write and what was the feedback? How did how did that happen and what gave you the courage to keep going? You know, that's so interesting. I mean, I don't even ever think I cared who thought I was good. <laughs> you know, I don't, I think that that caring didn't come until much later and like when I got older. And I sometimes have to, you know, go back to the girl that didn't care. Um, cause I, you can forget her real easily in a, in an industry that things focused on opinion, you know, but there was a point in my life where, and that, that was a point in my life where I never even, the idea that it wasn't good just never even crossed my mind. Like, I just, I felt like I'm a poet. I've always been good at writing since I was, you know, really a youth. Like, since I was in like second grade, my writing has always been applauded by my teachers. And so I, I, I guess I just felt the courage because I never, my mother, from my family members, I've always gotten encouragement as a writer. And as a performer, frankly, um, that I have some sort of special connection to the written word. And so when I when it came time to say, oh, you do it yourself, I, I honestly never thought it was. I remember this happened actually one because I wrote the play for myself and two of the other African American girls in my department at the time, and I'm still you know in contact with those women. But I remember one of the women at the time who didn't end up continuing with the show uh, because she just wasn't. We just weren't gelling. But I remember this is what made me know, gave me a hint that we may not gel with this show. I was so excited. I had not even gotten my play. You know, we had to submit it to the Basement Arts Program. We had to, you know, submit a proposal and then get the yes and then move forward. I had just submitted it. I hadn't gotten my yes or anything, but I was moving as if I was already, it was a done deal, (laughs) you know. And I was passing out the script to the girls I wanted to be in it, and I was excited to talk to them about their roles. And I remember one of the girls said to me, well, you know, they do say, no sometimes (laughs) and I just looked at her like how dare she (laughs) you know like why would she ever do that why would you rain on my parade it never occurred to me that they would say no to me and they didn't but I just I I knew how passionate I was and I was so committed I didn't really know the word no I didn't even conceive of it and so it was never a limitation for me and and when I got older it obviously you know you learn to start to doubt yourself. I didn't out of I didn't jump into this in self-doubt at all. Yeah, I, and I wanted to we're going to jump ahead a little bit cuz I want to talk to obviously you had this you have this big commercial behemoth of a musical on Broadway which is, you know, the biggest and brightest spotlight. How was it dealing with all the scrutiny of that as opposed to some of your earlier works? Well, between Broadway and Michigan, <laughs> a lot's happened. <laughs> There's a lot of story in there. But I, I, in my work, I mean, I, I had my first play produced in New York in 2013. So from 2013 to 2019, that's only six years. Mm-hmm. But for the length of time that I was a New Yorker and an artist living professionally in New York, that was from 2001 to 2019. That's almost 20 years. Yeah. And so for me, I from the moment I stepped foot in New York, I was always a playwright and an actor and a poet. And I did many, I was also a dancer. I did many things. My first show in New York was dancing. So I've, I've, I've started theater companies. I've written one woman shows. I've gotten up on stage and bombed, forgotten lines. <laughs> you know, I've just gone, I, I've built companies and seen them end with friends. I mean, I've done so many things. I've been a part of so many festivals, theater festivals where I've had 10 minute plays and one acts and, you know, And so I feel that between then to when my first 
full play got produced in New York City in 2013, I learned the rigmarole of what it means to submit your work and to hustle to get your work seen in New York. I think from 2013 to, to, to the Broadway scrutiny that you get, which is like the next level, next level scrutiny. Even the scrutiny I got being premiering my work at the public theater was an aggressive scrutiny for me at the time. Suddenly people that I don't know and who've never had a conversation with me are like speaking on my work and whether or not I'm, I'm capable as a writer, which was never a doubt in my mind since I was a kid, <laughs> you know, which everyone in my life has always been impressed with my writing to now be in a space where some people are and some people are not impressed or some people say I can and some people say I can't. And it's like, who are these people that get to make those decisions about what, what I'm capable of? I think between that and, so I've learned a new set of, of how to deal with, um, the, the microscope on my work sometimes, you know, between 2013 and now. I think with Broadway, there's always the constant reminder that Broadway is a commercial production. It is a commercial industry. It does not have the same principles of off-Broadway. It just doesn't. You know, decisions are not made strictly for artistic purposes. They're also made for the potential of consumerism. So I think when you know that, it allows you to to just weather information and weather the scrutiny differently and yet hold fast to my mission. Because I am an off-Broadway, uh, off-off-Broadway, an underground artist on Broadway. Hmm. Broadway is not changing who I am and what I do, and why I do what I do. So for me, when you see my work on Broadway, you're going to see me on that stage. That is the thing I don't compromise. I cannot always dictate the curation of that work, but when it comes down to the content of the work, that's gonna. I am an off-Broadway, <laughs> underground artist on Broadway. I love that. I you you seem to have done a, a high volume of work when you were here uh, when you first got here in two thousand and one, which I love doing festivals and ten minute plays and uh, concerts yeah. and all sorts of things. How much of your success do you equate just to the sheer volume of rep like I'm doing anything and everything that I was it practice for you? Was it marketing for you? Looking back on that time now, how important was it? Mm -hmm. Oh, very. I mean, when I talk to, you know, usually when I'm talking to young artists or newer artists that don't have to necessarily be young, I talk about what I call the foundational work. The, the, all that stuff I did in 2001, while to some people who are just getting out of school, they hear 10 or 20 years and that sounds like, like a panic attack to them. You know, like, oh God, I can't wait that long. But I think people have to be careful of how they're listening because I never said I waited on anything. I have been active and busy since I got to New York City. Mm. That doesn't mean I was visible, but the visibility is, is conditional. I, we can't always control who's watching. All I can control is what I'm doing. And so for me as an artist, yeah, it takes, it's, I, I, marketing, I'm, I'm married to a music artist who happens to also be a great marketer. Um, he got his, you know, he went to college, so he got his degree in communications and he came into the music industry as a, a director of marketing at a company. So he knows how to market himself and he has taught me how to market myself. I think that I don't really focus greatly on marketing as much as I I think what my husband, Jimmy Keys, JK, I think companies need to hire Jimmy Keys um, because what he does as a marketer, he, he has always talked to me about how marketing is storytelling. 
And so that connects to me as a, as a writer. I am a storyteller. So for me, I've never really focused on like promotion marketing more than I have just telling my story to the world. And so if I'm working on a project, I'm telling that story to the world. I just like to tell my story to the world. And that has helped me gain, um, I think, visibility in the work that I do. Can you talk a little bit about your process when you start a new play? Like you get an idea. It sounds like obviously you draw a lot from experiences around you and your world. Um, what's the first thing you do when you're like, I've got an idea for a play. Now what? Sometimes I do nothing. I think about it. <laughs> so if I go, oh, I have this idea for this play. I don't go, I don't write it down necessarily. I don't, I mean, some people do. And sometimes I might just, I might, some days I might come up with a list of just all of my ideas that I've had in my head, but I don't really go back to them because I look at ideas for myself that there are things that come to me once. If it comes to me twice, it starts to come to me three, four times, and that's when I know that's something I need to move towards. So the first, if I get this idea for a play, I don't just go sit down and write it. I go, oh, okay. I think I know what I want. I think I have this idea. Huh. All right. Let me see how that lives with me. Another week or month goes by and that's still on my mind. Or I start to think about that more. It starts to take up space in my brain. Then I know that I'm, I'm, I'm ready to move to like conceiving of it. And that means a lot of different things. You know, when it was, well, what was interesting about the Detroit project, that came to me as a project, as like a three play project. I, I had that idea. I was like, oh, I want to write three plays. <laughs> Because one isn't and enough. And I want them to be connected. Right, because one is not. I just like the number three is one of my favorite numbers. And I just like, that's what I want to do. And there were three eras in Detroit history that really excited me. So I thought, I really want to do this. And then the way that they come to me, I knew what I wanted to write about. I said, I want to do 1949 because I knew that that was during the Paradise Valley era. And I knew I wanted to write about the Paradise Valley era. So I go, okay, the 40s. And then I said 1967 because I heard we had a, a riot, the Detroit riots. What is, what is that? I've never really learned about that growing up. So I want to know. I want to learn. I want to write about that. And then I knew I wanted to write about the auto industry. So I knew that that was going to be more contemporary. And when I say contemporary, it was it's set in 2008. But at the time I was conceiving of this, it was only 2010. So for me, it felt still now. <laughs> now that play is about the past. <laughs> but at the time, it was about the present. <laughs> you know, at the time I conceived of it, it was the present story for me. And so that's what I wanted to look at those three eras because I knew that they were important. But when the when I start thinking about what I want to say about those eras, I knew 2008, for instance, I said, I want to deal with the auto industry. How do I do that? Oh, I think I want to set a play in a factory. I've never seen that. <laughs> you know, what, what could that look like? And where, oh man, that could be exciting. And I personally have never been in a factory. So then I needed to go start going visit some, you know, some factory museums in Michigan and start reading about factories. And so that's, that's how I started that one and reading about the closing of a factory and how that affected the workers. And then I look at my own relatives and who, who have also dealt with you know, factory jobs and, and they dealt with, you know, losing their jobs in 2008. So I had a range of people to talk to and to try to gather some stories. You said something very interesting there, which is really a mission of mine too. When I produce, you said, um, Oh, I want to set it, put a factory. I've never seen that before. And yeah. I'm a big believer in trying to put stories and people and scene, scenery, et cetera, animals and what's on this island on stage that yeah. people have never <laughs> seen before. Is that yeah. a common theme in your work, trying to do things that are unique? It is, or, you know, just unique to me, because I don't know, I don't, you know, you think you're doing something new, and then somebody's like, ah, <laughs> I'm not that interested in that, and that's fine, but for me, I try to think of what 
excites me. What have I not seen? Not what hasn't anyone seen, but what haven't I seen that I think is an exciting thing to go I would like to see. Um, and something that I haven't seen, I, I'm not so naive to think that just because I haven't seen it doesn't mean it hasn't been done somewhere in the world. But if I haven't seen it, that means it hasn't been done enough. <laughs> so I want to see something like that. Well, um, you've obviously got you know, good instincts for that type of thing. Yeah. So yeah. I heard you... I've known about your history, of course, and being here for a while. And then I heard uh, it was a conversation at some opening night party or something. And you were mentioned as a new writer. How does that make you feel? It's because you've obviously just popped on the scene in a big way with the Broadway success. And, the, and <laughs> as you said, since 2013, this has been you've been yeah. really kind of gaining steam. But you've been chugging away a long time. So how does that feel? I'm sure you've heard similar things from people are meeting like, oh, welcome to the club in a way. When you've been grinding yeah. away. I, you know, I mean, I haven't heard. No one's called me back to my face in a long time. So I don't know how I would feel if somebody. I, I was just, my eyes are just big, like, wow, am I still new? I don't know. You know, I remember for a long time when, when I was in the public emerging writers group, and then everybody keeps calling you an emerging writer forever. And you're like, how long? We would always ask each other the question, like, how long do you have to be emerging? Like, when, when do you, when have you emerged? You know, and we just realized, oh, never, because <laughs> marketing and branding, you know, they like to put new on you all the time. <laughs> it's just like something, nothing's better than new. You know, I'm like, I'll be 70 years old and they'll still be calling me new. And I guess that'll be that. But for me, I, I just take it that I'm new to you. <laughs> I'm new to you and to the people that haven't been paying attention. I'm always going to be new to somebody. But my work, I'm not new to my craft. So and that's how I feel. I feel like, okay, well, you, I'm new to you. I'm a new discovery for you, and that's fine. But I'm not new to what I do. I'm, I'm dyed in the wool by, at this point <laughs> for what I do. You have such a strong mission for the stories you want to tell on stage. And again, they affect you so personally or like, oh, I want to write about this because I don't know about this. When you write something and it gets up for the first time and you're going through a rewrite process, how much do you depend on the audience response or feedback or any of that to influence your writing? Or are you like, oh, I know what I need to do. This is I know it. Just leave me be. I can I can do this. Or do you rely on feedback? I do, but I rely on very calculated and structured feedback. I don't rely on feedback. It's like, you know, I always would think when I started working on television, I would, you know, and they would check the ratings or, you know, some, some of my co-writers would follow the Twitter. And I'd think, why are you following Twitter? They don't know what they want. <laughs> if they did, they would write it. We are the ones in control. You can't let an audience write your story for you. That's ridiculous. But I also thought, well, it is nice to know how they're feeling about things, you know, to some degree, uh, because it is teaching me what, if what I'm trying to communicate is useful information to me to see if what I'm trying to communicate is landing, is being communicated. They don't have to like it or dislike it. It doesn't, that's not the point. Is it, are they, is it being clear? Are they understanding the journey that they're on? Whether they like it or not like it is, is, is of no consequence, I think. Um, and so it's useful to me to sit in among an audience that doesn't know I'm the writer because it's very different when they do. <laughs> but when they don't know I'm the writer and I can sit among them and just listen, hear what they're hearing or hear how they're responding to the work, it does teach me about what's being communicated in my work. Do you read reviews? No, not I do not. No, Good I did not. Yeah. No, I like my sanity. And, um, you know, and I value my sanity. And I, I actually try to encourage 
any people in my life not to, but I, it's a, it's, it's hard. It takes, I actually was about to write something about this on Facebook today. <laughs> not about reviews, but about awards. Cause I also, I really do appreciate awards. The, the awards that I've been given in my life aren't usually the ones that go, and the nominees are these five people and this one won. You know, <laughs> the awards that I get usually come with just private nominations and someone has said this, you know, we want to award you. And I like those because they don't feel like they're necessarily um, pitting us against each other and, and being like a popularity contest. You know, it feels like you're just an acknowledgement of the work that I do. And that's exciting to me. But yeah, I just, I don't, I appreciate awards, but I also think we're just obsessed with them in a ways that really can be damaging to our, um, our industry and our, our, our ways of working, you know, because awards do help you with get visibility and that's great for the people that they give those awards to. But there's so many people, some of my favorite artists, my husband always reminds me of this actually. He always says, Bob Marley, who is one of our favorite artists, Bob Marley never got a Grammy. Bob Marley's a legend. <laughs> He's uh, never I received had no the, idea. the greatest award. He received one grant. He received post, what do you call it? Posthumously. So after his death, he then received Grammy. Bob Marley in his life never received a Grammy. And he is the legend that he is. So <laughs> I, I just always remember that and go, we can't, we cannot count on <laughs> things like being knighted, getting five stars or I don't know, 10 Tonys as the, we, that just can't be the only way that we're measuring greatness. So what does measure greatness for you as a writer? I think it's about the work. And the work, what the work is doing, the mission of the work, and if that mission is being achieved, you know. So to me, I, what I wish more, I wish critiquing would lean in this direction, and I hope it does eventually. I've talked to a lot of journalists. I've, I've talked to a lot of critics um, and, and, and have asked them about where they feel the tone is going, because I really hope that critics and, and theater can work more together and um, not... Not in people not sharing their their true and raw opinions, but that we're not using those opinions to shut theater down, but rather to ignite more conversations about theater so that we are sending people to the theater to weigh in as opposed to stopping them from spending their money on theater. And so to me, you can have your bold opinion and, and use it as an encouragement tool to create dialogue. I would like to see more of that happen. So to me, when the work, I wish more critiquing was asking the work, seeking um, understanding about the work's mission. How can you say someone failed at something that you don't even know what they were trying to do? I can't say you failed at something that I don't know what you were trying for. Maybe you did exactly what you were trying to do. And so I would like to see us engage. To me, successful work is when they have achieved, effectively achieved the mission of their work. And that's exciting to me. I, I find work that's successful when it personally, when I feel moved, charged, or disturbed, effectively disturbed, moved, or charged by the work. And you had a very strong mission when you started writing about doing more stories about your community, which you're obviously doing a lot of and doing very, very well. Uh, I want to talk about that a little bit. I mean, look, you're a woman playwright who's also a person of color. How has that world and the business changed over the last 20 years since you've been doing this? Are we getting better at this? What's what's your take on how far we've come and where we need to go? You know, I, I, 
I always I get asked that question a lot, and I think I've started to say uh, what I'm learning <laughs> um, to say to effectively convey my feeling is that I'm cautiously optimistic. Hmm. You know, I do feel like we are doing, there's a lot of great work happening right now. This past season in New York City, when I was there, I saw a lot of plays by people of color and, you know, and by and large, African, young African-American playwrights. And that was exciting to see that. You know, I was like, wow, this was not happening when I was getting produced, when I first got produced. Something changed. And so I'm excited about that, but I'm also cautious about that because I'm, I'm like, wow, this is a very trendy Thing. I hope we're not a trend, you know, because you, when you go really, when you just haven't been doing something and you do it really aggressively, it just feels like comp- overcompensation, you know? <laughs> and then it's like, is this sustainable? Are we actually making this sustainable for not just African-American playwrights, but Latinx playwrights, Asian-American playwrights, Native American play? Like, are we making space for everybody? Are we picking hot topics? Um, and that's what concerns me is the hot. I don't want to be somebody's hot pick for the week. I want to be fully indoctrinated into the the industry. Well, I would say one of the reasons that we're going through this cautiously optimistic phase and seeing a work by a lot of young African-American playwrights and other people of color is frankly because of people like you who 20 years ago said, hey, wait a minute, we're not doing enough of this. I'm going to do it myself. So I yeah. want to personally say thank you for paving the way for the world that we're living in now and hopefully where we'll go and the business, uh, where the business will go. Okay. I want to, thank you. Well, it's true. Thank you for saying that. It's absolutely true. You know, it's, you are the definition of what I call an entrepreneur and you like took the business in your own hands and are helping to shape it into the way you want it to be, which is great. So let's end with my, my genie question that I ask all (laughs) of my guests I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you and wants to thank you the way I just did for all the work that you've done to promote stories about your community. And that genie is going to grant you one wish. What's the one thing that you would change about the industry? And I'm going to say actually about Broadway in general, because you've just had this big Broadway experience here. Uh, By the way, everyone should go see Ain't Too Proud. It's a ton of fun Uh, Mm -hmm. and very, very touching and moving at the same time. A real credit to you. So you've just had this experience. What what drove you crazy about the – you're such a positive person. What frustrated you? What made you angry? What drove you crazy that you'd ask this genie to wish away in an instant about the Broadway experience? I think the thing that makes me makes me a little crazy, or I would say not even crazy because I, I value my sanity, <laughs> but makes me sad, really, is there's still this idea of elitism with Broadway uh, that people, uh, you know, and, there, and there's a limited idea about the people we think actually have the money to come so that we cater to only one specific age group, racial group, you know, and economic demographic. And that that's what we pour all of our energy and resources into as if no one else matters but them. And I, that makes me sad because I think, wow, I wish we would take more time and to really study the buying patterns of other communities of color, to, to study the trending buying patterns of young people. My God, young people matter. <laughs> and they, and we really don't pay attention to them because we think that they have no money. But I said, whoever 
the young people are always turn the tide for what will be, how commerce will go in the future. So we have to invest in them to be able to come see shows and to be marketed to um, and to become ambassadors for the industry that we're trying to keep alive. I would change those things. I would, I would change the way that we engage those communities uh, in, in a commercial space so that they are thought of, they're not afterthoughts, and that we actually aggressively seek them with the same fervor that we are seeking what I feel like is predominantly the older, over 60 white, you know, um, affluent audience. You know, I don't think I've heard a better reason of why we should get or a better explanation of why we need to get young people into the theater than that. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you for joining us uh, here today and everything that you're doing for the theater. I can't wait to read what's next and see what's next. And thanks thank to you. all of you for listening out there, and we will see you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.